All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your sweet word. And uh, it's with confidence that we confess this morning, we make this confession that the lost are saved and find their way at the sound of your great name. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of your great name. And so we pray for both of those things to happen. And we trust in you. We hope in you. Come now, Spirit of God, and give us informed minds, enlarged hearts, and bent wills as we dwell on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. How did I, how did I get here? This, this habit, it started out so, so small, so innocent, you know, just a little here, a little there. It was fun. It was so fun. It, it felt so good. And, and, and I, I could stop any time. But the reality is, this craving has taken over. I'm out of control, and I hate it. I, I I've tried to, I've tried to turn myself around. I, I don't know how many times I've said to myself. I don't know how many times I've said, "This is it. This is the last time. I should be stronger than this." I should be able to stop. But I just can't. I just can't. Can you relate to those words? Have you ever felt like something had taken over and gotten control of you? You know, a habit, a desire, it was just something, and it was just completely overpowering you. You know, it's a feeling of being trapped. It's like being stuck. It's a feeling of being helpless, overwhelmed, enslaved in bondage. We could say dominated. Sometimes we use the word addicted um, or the word addiction to describe such a condition. And that's an ugly word in our culture. It's an ugly word in our context. Its connotations are unpleasant. I mean, it conjures up images in your mind right now of dirty needles and desperate people doing desperate things. And maybe you feel this morning some disgust for people like that with a tinge of sympathy. But you think... Thank God that's not me. Well, before we reduce the word addicted to only include a a group of drug users and alcoholics, we need to reconsider. Because addiction can refer to something as serious as dependence on deadly drugs, or it can be as frivolous as an obsession with a TV show. 
Or a music icon like Justin Bieber. There you go, two weeks in a row, Bieber made the sermon. (laughs) But what really constitutes an addiction? Is it a physical dependency? A psychological dependency? Or is it a, is it a neurobiological issue, like the mat, a matter of the brain and its chemistry? You see, there's many different ideas out there, and, but no matter how people define addiction, it's striking to me that none of their proposals on the table incorporate the idea of sin. That would be considered, of course, passe in our culture, and fundamentally it's just unprofessional. But as Christians, we have a broader picture of reality, don't we? We understand what sin is and what sin does. So when a person is enslaved or in bondage or dominated by something, what are we really talking about? In his book, Addiction, A Banquet in the Grave, it's a great title, Ed Welch says, Addiction is a sin. That's radical up front. Addiction is a sin that you can't seem to stop because it has great power over you. In this way, it is a self-selected enslavement to an idol. That's, that's a great definition. Sin is the issue, and sin will destroy us. In fact, it was John Owen who said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. He's right. And how desperately do people in our day and age need to hear this kind of truth? Because in our day, addiction has been relegated to the category of disease. Sin has been taken out of the equation. So if you're an alcoholic, you have a disease merely. If you're a drug addict, you have a disease. If you're a sex addict, you have a disorder And, of course, that works well in our culture because it means you're a victim and not a sinner, and therefore you don't have to repent. You just need to recover. Well, we need to be clear about the fact that an addiction isn't first a disease. It's a worship disorder. Choosing a sinful and destructive pattern of behavior is a worship problem before it's anything else. It's a problem with an an idol. That's why I love organizations like Friends of Sinners, because they realize that the ultimate solution to things like addiction isn't behavior modification, it's worship alteration. And until the world realizes that, we'll be stuck with self-help programs that can only address the surface of the issue and never, ever get to the root. Psalm 40 is a psalm for addicted Broken, messed up, sinful, desperate people. It's a psalm about finding God in your darkest hour when you're in the pit. If you're alive, you can identify with this psalm. I mean, that's how broad its application is. But Psalm 40 is unique in the sense that it's both a a psalm of thanksgiving and a lament packaged in, in one. So, verses 1 through 10, David is expressing thanks for a time in his life when God had rescued him. And then in verses 11 through 17, he's grieving. And he's praying to God. He's in distress and he needs to be rescued again. And so he prays for God's intervention. So, really what this psalm does is it teaches us how to find God in the midst of trouble. It's a theology of rescue, if you will. 
And the way David finds his encouragement is by preaching good news to himself. He preaches good news of past deliverance, and he does it in four ways throughout the text. David, he remembers his story. He remembers his Savior. He preaches it to others, and he prays with faith. And friends, I want to submit to you this morning that that's how you get out of a pit. That's how you get out of your pit. You do four things. You, this is what we'll look at this morning. We'll remember, remember your story, remember your Savior, preach it to others, and pray with faith. So that's where we're going. Point one, remember your story. Verses one through five. You know, David starts by reflecting on God's grace in his life. That's what he starts his psalm with. David doesn't listen to himself. He, he's not sitting there listening to himself. He's not thinking about how difficult his life is. What does he do? He preaches good news to himself. He remembers God's, God's rescue. He reflects on God's kindness and his mercy. And David explodes with thanksgiving. In, in the first five verses, he says that God heard him, God saved him, God inspired him, God blessed him. First one, first, God hears him. I waited patiently for the Lord, and here it is, he inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, it's a big deal that God heard his cry, because think about where David is. David's in the pit. David is in what he calls the pit of destruction. Now, we don't know exactly what that pit is or how he got there, but look, that's all we need to know is the fact that he's in a pit. He's in a pit, and he calls it the pit of destruction. And he's crying for deliverance. In fact, you know, in one way, it's probably good that we don't know what David's pit is, because if we did, what we would say is, oh, well, see, God can deliver people from that, but he can't deliver me from this. And I think God just intentionally leaves that vague for us so that we can apply David's experience to our life. Uh, You know, I looked up this phrase, pit of destruction, and it doesn't occur anywhere, but if you add the word pit and you add the word destruction and you look up each of those words and you put them together, you get, a, you get an amazing metaphor. Uh, pit, um, pit, the word destruction, let's start there, is refers to the roaring of waves in the midst of a storm. You know, we just saw me thinking about Hurricane Irene. All right, now think about this, the roaring of waves in the midst of a storm. And then when you consider the usual meaning of the word pit, which is like a well or a cistern, a deep well, the image becomes striking. It's, it's as if David had fallen into a dark, deep well, and he was plunged not into a nice, clean, crisp pool at the bottom, but he fell into a roaring storm like a hurricane. Only it's completely dark and he's underground. And then alongside that image, you have this, this, this language here in the psalm of a miry bog. So imagine falling into a well and sinking deep into the sludge at the bottom, and every time you lift your foot up to get out, you sink in deeper, like quicksand. And then all of a sudden, while you're doing that, you feel this roaring coming, and then this water begins to surround you, and it's coming from somewhere, and it's rushing around you in the dark. I mean, this is the sense that David is really depicting here. This is a dark circumstance. It's, it's, David is in despair. It's the feeling of helplessness for us, applying it to ourselves. It's the feeling of helplessness that a man is experiencing who finds himself in the throes of a pornography addiction. It's the feeling of desperation that a single mother has when she wonders how she's going to make it through another week by herself. 
It's the broken and defeated feeling of the single man or woman who has wanted to be married but has had their hope deferred time and time and time again. It's the outer limits of exasperation for a mother of three constantly crying children. It's the apparent hopelessness of a terminal illness or the imminent attack of a powerful enemy. It's the breaking point of discovering infidelity in a marriage after 20 years or the inward turmoil of keeping an adulterous affair hidden from your spouse. Maybe it's your sin, maybe it's your depression, maybe it's your addiction, maybe it's your circumstances, but whatever it is, it's a pit and it is bad. And you know it, you can feel it. And the folks, the folks, the the fact is we've all been there. Some of us are there right now. So the most pressing question for us this morning is how do you get out of that? How, How do you get out of a pit? Well, obviously, I mean, clearly it starts with crying out to God. I mean, that, we just do that intuitively. We cry out to God. And I, I remember a time in 2007 when all I could do was repeat the words of Psalm 6-6. I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Has anybody been there? We have people, you know, we, we have people there right now. Some of you are sitting there in the pew and you are feeling this. You are there. You're living this. And you fall down and you beg God to hear you. And, and that's what David does. He cries out to God. And you get, you get to a place, I remember hearing a song by Jars of Clay a few years ago, that it, it's just this, this terrible sort of depiction of, God, where are you? You get to a place where you say, God, where are you? And, and you scream, and sometimes you go to a lonely, isolated place, and you just want to lift up your arms to God, and, and you cry out. You say, God, where are you? I'm suffering. I'm hurting. And some of that's because of your sin or whatever, but you're crying out to God. And David cries out to God. But a time came when God actually turned to David, and he heard his cry. He heard his cry. God heard him, and he answered him, and he took David by the hand, and he pulled him from the muddy, slimy wreckage of his life and placed his feet on a rock. That happened. That actually happened, even about David's sin with Bathsheba and how dark circumstances got for him. And he, David thought he had ruined his life, and God pulled him from that wreckage. Friends, God hears us. If you get anything from this sermon this morning, I want you to hear this. God hears you. You just need a broken and contrite heart. God will hear you. He saves us. And then what does he do for David and for us? Does he just send us on our way after he restores us? Does he just say, well, have a good day. I've restored you. He sends us on his way. No. Verse 3, what does he do? He leads us to worship. He inspires us with a new song. He fills our mouth with praise. You know, people who never sing, people who never sing, at least in their hearts, are people who have never felt intense gratitude for anything. They're people who take life for granted. They never feel anything very deeply. They don't know what it's like to to fly, to soar at the heights of praise with a deep sense of joy in their hearts. But listen, a man who understands that he's been rescued is a man who will sing. 
He soars along the winds of joy. He celebrates. He's happy. He's not morose. He's not sad. He, he sees the rescue of God and he sings like he's never sung before. All the old songs, in fact, seem like they're brand new. You're like, wow, this song, this song's from the 1700s and it would otherwise be so stale and so old, but it's coming alive for me. I can feel it. And then, and then even the old songs, if, if you read them and, and they're not enough for you, then guess what? God will inspire new songs for you. He inspires us with new songs, people of God. We must not merely sing the songs of yesterday's saints. We must sing those, but we must not merely because God is rescuing today. Have you been rescued? Has he put a song on your lips? Has he put a song on your tongue? See, you have a particular story of God's rescue. Your rescue is unlike anybody else's rescue. So you have your own song to write. Don't just sing everybody else's song. Sing your song. What is the song that God has given to you? Sing that song. Find the specific way that God has been gracious to you and let him inspire you with a new song. Write it down. Put it on paper and sing for joy. That's what David did. In fact, his song, I think, is really verses 4 and 5. David is writing his own song. You know what that song is about in 4 and 5? The song is about trusting God and treasuring God. Verse 4, he trusts God. In verse 5, he treasures God. None can compare with you. That's his song in 4 and 5. But friend... I'm going to say this to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you say, I'm pretty sure I'm not a Christian. I, I mean, clearly I'm not living like one. I'm away from God. Then let me say this to you. You can't do this. You don't have a song to sing. What song are you going to sing this morning? You can sing a lament is what you can sing. You can sing a song of sadness, a song of sorrow. But and I say this with love and compassion. You don't have a song of praise. What, what song could you possibly sing this morning? I'll tell you what you do have, though. You have a story of God's mercy so far. And that word so far is important because you don't have any promise of tomorrow. The fact is, though, if you're alive today, God has been patient with you. He has not turned his face away from you. His invitation is on the table. In fact, he's speaking. And the question is, are you listening? That's the question. Are you listening to him? Because you can have your own story of grace. You you, you realize that, right? All of us in here are singing and are happy because we have a story of grace. You can have that. You can have that, but it'll have to start with a realization that you are deeply messed up and in need of God. Charles Spurgeon says, this is great. The first link between your soul and Christ is not your goodness, but your badness. It's not your merit, but your misery. Not your riches, but your need. That's the requirement, to fill your need of him. Just release your grip on this world. Release it. Step off the throne of your life and bow your knee to King Jesus. Pray that you will do that. But friends, the fact is, for us, God hears us, he saves us, he inspires us, and he blesses us with himself. I mean, it's no wonder we're singing new songs. You know, if, if you want to get out of the pit, first, you remember your story. You reflect on God's grace to you. Step two, verses six through eight, you need to remember your Savior. Six through eight, remember your Savior. You know, the key word here is God's providence. 
Uh, sorry, God provides. Excuse me. God provides. This is the key word. How is it that a person enters into relationship with God? How do we do that? Is it through repeated sacrifices and sin offerings? Is it through obedience to God? Is it through strict adherence to his law? Is that how we enter a relationship with God? No. Then how can a person have a reconciled relationship with God? Verses 6 through 8 here teach us that we are delivered through an obedient servant. And that servant is not David. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is that servant. In fact, in these verses, they're quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And they're explicitly applied to Jesus Christ. These verses are explicitly applied to him. So do this. I want you to do this. Keep your eyes on Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and let me read Hebrews 10. You keep your eyes on Psalm 40, 6 through 8, and I'll read Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. And I want you to notice the similarity. Hebrews 10 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, let me explain what's going on here, because there's a phrase here that you don't see in Psalm, and it's a body you have prepared for me. That phrase has changed, and it's changed under the inspiration of God because it means something. Now listen, let me explain what's going on. Hebrews 10 tells us of a new epic that has arrived in human history with the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews, Jesus is described as the superior new covenant sacrifice for sin. You see, in the old covenant, sacrifices were constantly being made for sin And they were being made in an earthly tabernacle, and they involved the blood of animals, and they had to be performed year after year after year. But Christ's sacrifice was offered in a heavenly tabernacle. It involved his own blood, and it only had to be performed once. And that's the point of Hebrews 10. Old covenant sacrifices can never perfect the worshiper. You can't get perfect You can't make it into God's presence on the basis of old covenant sacrifices. Because if the offering had provided a complete cleansing for sin, here's the argument, then further sacrifices would not be necessary. If if, if one sacrifice was enough in the old covenant, then many wouldn't be necessary. And since many happened and they, they occurred year after year, then they were not able to completely cleanse the sinner or restore our relationship with God. You see that? So the old covenant sacrificial system was ultimately ineffective in dealing with sin. The blood of bulls and goats, as it says, could never wash away our sin. So Christ came as a better high priest and brought a superior sin offering. And that offering was complete and final. So and Jesus then what he does is he comes along and he applies Psalm 46 through 8 to himself. And he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But here it is. But a body you prepared for me. What Christ is saying is that when he came, he submitted himself to the father's will and he offered his body as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sins. Jesus is offering his body as the supreme new covenant sacrifice, and Jesus promised that by going to the cross and shedding his blood, sins would be forgiven forever. And that promise is for all who trust in him. 
So we no longer need to offer sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. We no longer need to visit temples to draw near to God because Jesus is our temple. We no longer need to celebrate the Passover because Jesus is our Passover. And we no longer need to live in habitual sin because Jesus has released us from the power of sin and made us new creations in Christ Jesus. Now, back to, that, back to our question. So then how is it a, that a person enters into relationship with God? Is it through repeated sacrifices and offerings? No, it's through trust in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who went to the cross and shed his blood in your place so that you can have a relationship with him. He is your new covenant sacrifice. This is beautiful section of Psalm 40. You would read that at first and not, and not think about Jesus. But when you see the intertextual connection with Hebrews 10, it just really comes alive. You know the phrase, um, Yahweh Yira. Perhaps some of you know that as Jehovah Jireh. You know that phrase? That means God provides. And this is the phrase that Abraham uses in Genesis 22:14 when he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then God provides a ram in the thicket. Remember, it gets caught. And God provides the ram. And what does Abraham say? Yahweh Yireh. Jehovah Jireh. God provides. And then Abraham utters these beautiful words. Listen to this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Do you see the Savior? On the mount, God did provide. And it was on the mount of Calvary. And he provided his son. And that perfect sacrifice has been accomplished. So remember your Savior, people of God. Remember your Savior. He has come. All the sacrifice that was necessary has been paid. That's why verse 9 begins the way it does and why I I, uh, encourage Tim to read the text this morning by using the word righteousness. Because verse 9 begins the way it does this way. It says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Now that word there, as Tim has already said, is the word sedek and should be translated righteousness. And it makes sense in the context because Jesus is our righteousness. And since that's true, we're compelled to tell the good news. So this is step three. We preach. We preach it to others. If you want to climb out of the pit, you have to remember your story, remember the Savior, and preach it to others. It doesn't stop with just keeping it to yourself. You can't keep it to yourself. So what did Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what your heart is thrilled with, what you're excited about, is what you're going to speak about. And David's heart is overflowing, and he is not going to restrain himself. And he says, in fact, he says, I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. That's what he says. I've not hidden this righteousness. I've not concealed it. I've not kept it to myself. So he preaches about God. And specifically, he says two things about God. Number one, God is righteous. And number two, God is faithful. God is righteous and God is verse nine. God is righteous. I have told the glad news of your righteousness. And then verse 10, I've spoken of your faithfulness. Friends, is that your testimony this morning? Have you experienced the gift of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ? Have you found the Lord to be faithful? Yeah? Then declare it to others. 
See, maybe the problem is that we've not reflected enough about how merciful God has been to us. Do you ever think about maybe that's our greatest hindrance to evangelism? We haven't thought about what we've been rescued from. You know, that hasn't really gripped us. We haven't really gotten a hold of that issue. But of course we did when we were brand new Christians. We were excited. When we were going around telling everybody, I am new in Christ. I'm excited. I have a new gospel. This is great. This is good news. And you, you know, you look like an, a fool. You're just walking around preaching to everybody. And then slowly that dies off and it dies off and it dies off. And you know what? That's not appropriate. We, we cannot be happy with that. We, we cannot, we, we need to be, I pray, and our pastors we, together, we pray that God would make us, at leaders and all, members, a church that, that lives like we just became Christians yesterday. With that kind of fire, with that kind of passion, with that kind of hunger for God. You think about Luke 7, you know, when Jesus is, when this prostitute walks in and she begins to wet Jesus' feet and wipe them with, it, with her hair, and she's, she's this repentant prostitute, and she's broken. Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for, what does it say? She loved much. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying there. I think it's very paradigmatic for us because think about those two words, many and much. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Listen carefully. Our much love is not the cause of our many sins being forgiven. Our much love is the evidence or the consequence of the fact that our many sins have been forgiven. Our passion, our intensity, our adoration for God is a depiction of our awareness that our many sins have been forgiven. And where we conclude that there is little that we've been forgiven of, there will be little passion, little affection, little adoration and worship of the living God. But friends, where we conclude that we have been forgiven of many sins, we will have much passion and affection and adoration and worship for God. You see, what we need is to be ever increasingly aware of the fact that God has rescued us from many sins. We, we need to be aware of that, and we need to be reminded of how much God is doing for us now. This is why the doctrine of sin will always be a priority in this church. Jerry Bridges writes, A large part of our problem as evangelical believers is that we have defined sin in its more obvious forms, forms in which we are not guilty. That's too often our problem. We define sin in its more obvious forms, and we, do, we reduce our definition of sin to those more obvious forms. And those are the things that we are convinced that we are not guilty of. But you see, if we reduce sin that way, then we'll be prone to think that we've been forgiven of little. And if we think that we've been forgiven of little, then we'll love little. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that the doctrine of sin is crucial to our love for God. It's crucial. The great cross is only great in light of our great sin. The cross doesn't look glorious if you don't think you're sinful. But if you really understand how deeply sinful you are, the cross is so great and marvelous. Now, if you spend time on the doctrine of sin, you will be amazed by grace. And you will not restrain your lips. You will not conceal the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. 
Folks, the problem isn't that we don't have enough people evangelizing. The problem is we don't have enough people reflecting on God's mercy in light of our great sin. That's the problem. If we start there, evangelism will take care of itself. Living missionally will take care of itself. If we could just get a hold of what God has done for us and how he has gone after us and rescued us from ourselves, we would go out to the streets and literally scream our heads off. What prevents you from going to the street? What prevents me from going to the street right now and feeling the urgency of the matter? What's preventing that is that we do not adequately understand how merciful God has been to us. What are we doing here? Why are we in the sanctuary right now? Do you realize the miracles that took place by God's grace to even get us in this room today? (laughs) We need to be freshly reminded of the fact that we were under the wrath of God. We were enemies of God. God's anger burned hot against us. We had no hope in this world. We were blinded by the devil. We were completely captivated and in love with ourselves. We were addicted, as Jeff Cotiller prayed in his prayer last Sunday night. All of us were addicted to sin. Totally addicted to sin. There's no way out. We are not going towards God. We hated God. We were his enemy. We stuck our fist in his face. And then God broke us down. And he rescued us from the pit. And he delivered us. And he gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have new life in him. But we don't understand what we've been rescued from. We, we don't dwell on that enough. And so we are not motivated. We are not led to the streets. So can I commend for us this week as, an, as, a, as a personal investigation to meditate all week on how much God has done for you. Meditate on God's mercy. Dwell there every day. Think about God's rescue mission in your life. And pray, God, just remind me of this. Refresh me of this. Show me this. And friends, listen, as you remember your story and remember your Savior You will proclaim that message to everyone you know. That's what will happen. You will begin to proclaim that message. Well, finally, to climb out of a pit, uh, you must pray with faith. And that's what David did in verses 11 through 17. This is David's lament. And, you know, this psalm is actually, these words are actually almost completely repeated in Psalm 70, almost word for word. But mingled with his grief and his concern, David has a heart of faith. He's deeply concerned. He's deeply troubled. He's grieving. It's a lament, but there's faith there. Faith was sown into the mix. In fact, it's his story in verses 1 through 10, I think, that sustains him. I think it's the fact that he's already climbed up the first three rungs of the ladder by God's grace that he, that he has faith to pray for another rescue because he remembered his story, he remembered his Savior, and he preached it to others. And his faith is built up, and David finds himself with a heart to go on, and so he prays and he believes God. What does he believe God for? What does David believe? Four things specifically. God will be merciful to me, verses 11 and 12. God will save me or deliver me. Verse 13, God will defend me, verses 14 and 15, from my accusers, and God will remember me. Verse six, verses 16, especially verse 17. 
God will be merciful to me. He will save me. He will defend me and he will remember me. So let me just pick up on one of those as we close, because you know what? It encapsulates all the rest. God will be merciful to me. That's our hope. That's our hope. God will be merciful to me. And it's our firm belief. Verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. And it's a good thing. Because like David in verse 12, the evil we have done is beyond measure. Did you notice the word there in verse 12? It's beyond measure. When, when we're caught in a pit of sin, we can say with David that our sin and iniquity, iniquity has taken us over. It's come on us like an army behind us, and we've been completely taken over by it. And it's not that we've been caught merely. It's far more serious than that. In verse 12, we see that it's actually affecting the heart. You see, he says, my heart is beginning to fail. Sin is killing us, quite literally. Sin destroys us. And so David cries in verse 13, Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. I always thought when I read that the first time I was thinking, isn't that a little bold to say that to God? Tell God when to move? To say, God, move quickly? Because you think, I'm not, I'm not supposed to tell God when he can move. We don't say things like that in prayer. We say, Lord, move at your own time. But David's so bold to say, God, make haste. Come now. Come quickly. Deliver me. This situation is so bad, it's out of control. I need immediate attention. Send the medevac now. I'm messed up. I need help. God, come to me. Make haste to help me. And as he's praying, he's remembering his story. He remembers his Savior, and he believes that God will be merciful to him, not because who, who he is, but because of who God is. See what he's doing? David is arguing on the basis of God's character. He's arguing on the basis of the fact that God is a God of mercy. So what if you're not a Christian this morning? You say, dude, I'm messed up, man. I am trapped in some pretty serious sin. What if you are a Christian? You, you can apply this to yourself. But if you're not, you say, I'm, I'm trapped, man. I am, I'm really in some serious sin. I am, I'm too far gone. I'm really messed up. You know, the fact is God would never show mercy to me now. Not anymore. I've, I've messed up too bad. Well, if you think that way, then let me remind you of this truth. You cannot out God's grace. You cannot. His grace runs deeper than your deepest sin. The question is, do you believe that? You say, no, I I don't. I think I'm too far gone from God. I'm too far away from him. Then let me ask you this question. How long do you think God's arm is? Do you think God can reach you? Absolutely. Absolutely he can reach you. Friend, he can reach you. The only thing you need is a broken heart and, listen, a desire to be reached. Pride is in the way. You don't want to be reached. May God break you down and give you a desire to be reached. And church, we have hope this morning. As Christians, we have hope, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. That's our hope. 
Just as David did not restrain his lips, so, listen, God will not restrain his mercy, verse 11. God is compelled by his mercy to rescue his children. He places no restraints on his rescuing love for us. In many ways, this text reminds us of the two of the too good to be trueness of the gospel. You know, like, like David, we too sin against God and we find ourselves in a pit of despair, but God restores us. If we are in Christ, then God loves us no less than he loves his son. He, he loves, his love does not increase, it does not decrease because of what we do. It's just fixed. It's fixed for you. His declaration of love for you never changes God's love is not conditioned on your obedience or disobedience. This is so important. In your worst moments, when you shake your fist at the sky, when you mouth off at your wife, when you berate your children, when you harbor bitterness toward God, when you are impatient and full of anxiety, at that moment, in Christ, legally, in that moment, God loves you no less. In your worst moments, God loves you the same. See, the gospel is more radical than we dare believe. Because some of you are saying, God could not possibly want me here with all this sin in my heart. And the disturbing thing about grace is that God looks at you right now and says, I delight in you. This is why the grace of God isn't just amazing, it's disturbing. And it's this kindness that leads us to repentance. Milton Vincent said in his excellent book, A Gospel Primer, he said, When I realized that God wouldn't love me any less if I committed a sin, at that moment, I lost my desire to sin. That's very well said. Friends, the grace I'm describing here, let's just be clear. Isn't, isn't some Rogerian that comes from Carl Rogers, person-centered, therapeutic, unconditional, positive regard nonsense. You know, like God just accepts me as I am. That's cheap and it's superficial. God's grace is way better than that. The gospel sinks far deeper than that because it says God accepts you not as you are, but as you are in Christ. See, the gospel is better than unconditional love. In fact, we could say that God has a contra-conditional love for us. That is, his love is contrary to conditions. It has nothing to do with you in the deepest sense, but everything to do with his son. Jesus bears the curse we deserve. He lives the life that we never lived, and he gives us his own righteousness and changes all that is unacceptable to God about us, which means that God doesn't accept you as you are. He accepts you as you are in Jesus Christ. That is good news. And so if you're a Christian this morning, then I think I can say with absolute positive conviction that god is for you he is so for you i i say with paul i echo his words if god did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things including our rescue from the pit he will he cares
And he is passionate about you. So is anyone in a pit this morning? Do you want to get out? Here's the ladder. Remember your Savior. Remember your story. Preach it to others. And pray with faith. Just say to God, verse six, verse 14, Be pleased, O Lord, 13, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You know what? We're all poor and needy. But guess what? God takes thought for us. Let's pray. God, we want to pray for every pit experience that is that is being had right now in this church. There are people in the pit of sin, in the pit of despair, in the pit of depression, in the pit of discouragement. Their sin has just wreaked havoc on many of us in this room. And God, we need to be delivered. And, and if it's not us this morning, it's going to be us in the future. Because we're going to mess ourselves up because we're sinful and we do dumb things. And we're going to find ourselves in that pit again. So, Lord, we pray that you would just give us the ability to, to, to just lean on you, to see your love, to see your deliverance for us, to see your rescue effort, your rescue mission on our behalf, that, we would, that our faith would be built up. And we pray for everyone here, Lord, this morning who needs to be rescued, especially those who do not know you, who are in the absolute worst pit because they're without hope. And without God in this world. So come and rescue. Change us from this text. Let Psalm 40 never be the same for us. By your grace. In Jesus name. Amen.